You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Once again this week, we have five arts destinations to cover in the next 58 minutes, where we get to hang out with a posse of arts pals who, no matter how much the world tries to keep them on their sofas, their love for the arts, and for all of us, keeps them at the vanguard of the local arts scene. Let's start off today's tour with a nice cup of tea, no sugar, and a gentle browse along the bookshelves of Skylark Bookshop with its owner, Alex George. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you? Well, I wanted to start by saying thank you to you for two awesome literary recommendations you made on previous shows. The first is Golden State by Ben Miller, which is a fabulous old-fashioned detective story, but set in a dystopian future with a worse crime you can commit to tell a lie, which sounds so attractive right now. Um, And that was just (laughs) fabulous. I couldn't put it down. And the second, which I'm halfway through listening to, is the audiobook of The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson about Winston Churchill and the bombing of London in 1940. And I think you had commented at the time, because you had listened to the audiobook, we were talking about how good the narrator was. And I don't know who he is, but what an amazing ability he has to portray different voices. He has this kind of deep voice, so he does Churchill so well, but he also can translate that into a much more kind of floaty female voice when he needs to. Just fantastic to listen to. It is, and these narrators are incredible how they do that. And um, the the guy who does has done all of the Harry Potter books has every single character, and there are hundreds of them, and they all have their own voices. And how they keep them straight... I have no idea, but it's it's a particular kind of genius. And you know, um, before they've said the said X or Y, you know who it is because you recognize it because they do such a good job of creating these distinctive characteristics. Yeah, absolutely Amazing. incredible. I mean, it's really long. We listened to it. We went on a road trip and we've listened to probably half of it, but I've still got nine hours to go. So I don't quite know when I'm going to listen to that. It's such compelling stuff, though. And yeah. even though you know what's going to happen, he's the thing about Larson is that he is just he's a wonderful storyteller. And I just love, love listening to him tell these stories. It's so good. It is. But this week, we are going to change course a little. We're going to veer away from fiction and into the heady world of food porn, as I call it, (laughs) with a look at cookbooks. So yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you first of all, because I know what my answer is. Do you remember what was the first cookbook you purchased? I do. And it was a Nigel Slater book called 30 Minute Cook. And Nigel Slater is, I don't think, especially well known over here in the States, but he's he's very big over in the UK. And um, uh, and that was the first one that I bought. I should say, just by way of disclaimer, that my father has an illness. He uh, drives my mother crazy. He collects cookbooks. <laughs> uh, and uh, every so often they have a purge and they sort of they they sell sort of dozens and dozens of them just so he has space to go and buy some more. So it's sort of and it kind of runs in the family a little bit. So <laughs> uh, so as a family, we are used to sort of you know we compare and uh, and, and cook together. So it's um, we enjoy it. 
So Nigel Slater was, I think, my first one. And then I, I was probably given a Delia Smith book at some point, who you will know. But again, people over, over here in the States may not know as well. I um, thought that, I mean, that, that, was, that was my first purchase cookbook was Delia Smith. So I, I wondered if that was going to be yours too. I mean, I love Nigel Slater <laughs> as well. But yeah, Delia Smith yeah. was my Bible for so many years. Yeah, she's actually got a book, I think, called The, the, the Delia Smith Bible, <laughs> which I have. <laughs> well, you're one up on me. I don't, I don't have that one. So, yeah, I, I, I'm curious about cookbooks because it seems like these days I'm more often than not, if I want to make something or I have a set of ingredients available, I just go online and type sure. in the ingredients and see what comes up. So are cookbook sales as vibrant as they always were? I, I think so. And I think that, I mean, you're right. A lot of people do do that. I've ne- I don't think I've ever done that. Um, but again, that's partly due to this condition that I have. <laughs> uh, but uh, there is something that you, that, that online sort of perusing of recipes doesn't give you. And that's because, first of all, you're never quite sure where the recipes are coming from. True. Uh, and when, when they come from a cook or a chef that you know, then there is a kind of like a, it has the, you know it's going to be good. There's a sort of stamp of authority on it, which I like. Uh, and the other thing is that I just enjoy that. I mean, more than a novel, I think cookbooks as artifacts are beautiful things. These days, they are an incredibly high-end product with you know glorious full-color photographs. They're tactile and they're and they're wonderful. And you know, one of the ways that I, when I look at my cookbook collection, I know where the good recipes are is because the pages are splattered <laughs> with olive oil and tomatoes and what, what have you. Uh, and so, and, and, and it sounds a little weird, but that, that in and of itself is a sort of wonderful sort of memento of past experiments. Uh, and you don't get that when you, when you do it online. So I, I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to that. But uh, I, so I do like to have the, the actual book. And the other thing is that I actually enjoy just reading them. Uh, and and going through and going, oh, let's do that one, let's do that one. So they actually can provide the inspiration, whereas when you're going online, you tend to be looking for a particular thing. So you're less likely to discover something new. Right. I agree with you there. I mean, I, I'm i always a little wary of online recipes because they don't feel as tried and tested. Like I know if mm-hmm. I pick up a Delia Smith book or Nigel Slater or whoever it is, that every recipe in that book has been tried and tested. The amounts right. are accurate, you know, and you can you can trust what's going to be the end result as long as you sure. don't mess up at all. <laughs> 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 uh, online, you have to you have to know, I think, a little bit about cooking to access the online recipes. Otherwise, you you don't see the pitfalls that are potentially coming. I, your way. I think that's I think that's right, but that's also true with with books as well because sometimes you know people will skip over. <laughs> what may seem like an obvious step to them, mm. but is a rather crucial one if you don't know what you're doing. So uh, experience always helps. Now, part of the appeal, and you mentioned this of a cookbook, is just this gorgeously scrumptious photographs that are so immediate, like they're almost like scratch and sniff. You feel like, oh, I could, I can almost smell this coming off the page. How do you feel about cookbooks without photographs in them? Well, I've got a few, and there's there's they're still very good. There's there's a there's a wonderful one, the Dean and DeLuca cookbook that. It doesn't have a single photograph in it, and I cook out of that all the time. But I'm I, I'm not going to lie; I much prefer it <laughs> when there's a when there's a photograph. Uh, and uh, it, I have been known to um, compare and contrast the uh, end product with the end. when what I make looks like the photograph. That is a cause for celebration. It doesn't happen very often, but uh, just 
every so often it does. And so it's it's nice to have it um, for, for multiple reasons. And I think you are more likely to cook a thing if you see a picture of it, because you're just right. going to go, you know, your different senses are being engaged and you just go, oh, my goodness, that looks absolutely delicious. So which books are we going to talk about today? What have you got as a recommendation for us? So lots of different books to choose from, uh, almost too many. Um, and so, you know, one of the problems with this, although I always enjoy speaking with you, Diana, but I have to make these decisions and these choices <laughs> about what to talk about, which is never easy. Um, I think that you can sort of take cookbooks and, and sort of divide them up into different sort of categories. There's a celebrity cookbook type thing. People like Chrissy Teigen. There are diet cookbooks, which is sort of people with some sort of eating requirements, whether that's keto or gluten-free or what have you. Then there are sort of reference cookbooks, like sort of how to cook everything, those sorts of things. And then there are kind of what I would call aspirational cookbooks that you might read and <laughs> think, oh, that would be nice to make one day, but never actually cook anything out of it. And then there are actual books that you <laughs> cook out of. And those are the ones that I really wanted to focus on today. And uh, there's a, uh, a wonderful book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which was also the subject of a Netflix documentary by Samin Nosrat. And that is a wonderful, wonderful book. It's actually unlike any other cookbook that I have. And Lord knows I have a few. Uh, in that there are recipes there, but it's, it's really about more than that. It's about her overall philosophy about cooking. And uh, she um, teaches you to think about food in a different way and about cooking in a different way so that you can sort of open up your refrigerator and see what you've got and then take it from there and make decisions about what to put, what goes with what and what goes well. And it's a, it's a, it's a fabulous, fabulous book. And you can actually just sit down and read it. Uh, you don't just use it in the kitchen. So, uh, so that's a good one. And then one of the books that I'm cooking out of an awful lot at the moment is called Simple. And that's by Yotam Otto Lenghi. Now, Otto Lenghi has written a ton of books. I've got all of them. Another very good one is Jerusalem. But this one, uh, as you would sort of know from the title, is called Simple. So it's good for sort of cooking during the week if you don't have a lot of time. Relatively simple ingredients, not too many of them and relatively simple to do. But it doesn't in any way impact on the flavor. They are all absolutely delicious. And Otto Lenghi is known for sort of a fusion cuisine, if you like, and there's a lot of Middle Eastern flavors and they're, they're very flavorful and always, always delicious. So that's really good. And one thing that I have noticed, particularly looking at Instagram and Facebook these days, is that apparently everybody except for me has become an expert <laughs> in making sourdough, sourdough. bread. <laughs> and <laughs> And people post these absolutely extraordinarily beautiful photos of the bread that they've made. I do bake bread, but I do very boring white bread. It's still delicious, but it's nothing as impressive as any of those things. So I wanted to mention a, a baking book. And one that's been very popular is called Rage Baking, which uh, Love is the title. not just... Yeah, and it, <laughs> it's not just a cookbook. There are also essays and interviews and portraits of feminist thinkers... And it's a really, so it's, it's, it's a good book to help you cook, but it also, you know, you can get some of you, some of your rage about some of the iniquities of modern life <laughs> out when you're pounding the dough on the table. So uh, it's sort of very therapeutic. 
Well, salt, fat, acid, heat is definitely on my acquisition list because I've never heard anybody say a bad word about it. It just seems like Simon Nosrat is just everybody's new cooking hero. And I like the fact that she just says, well, let's see what's in your fridge. Because particularly right now, I find that lots of things are not in my cupboards and I don't really want to go to the shops for like two ingredients. So <laughs> just being able to open the fridge and right. work out what we can do is a fantastic philosophy. Yeah, no, it's really good. And she is, I mean, she is wonderful. She's got such charisma on the screen. And that also comes across on the page as well. And the other lovely thing about that book is that, you know, these days there's incredibly high production values with these cookbooks and they're always these beautiful color photos. There is not one photograph in that book, but instead what you have are beautiful hand-drawn pictures and paintings by the artist who has worked with Nosrat and they're, they're absolutely delightful too. Well, maybe that'll be my acquisition for this week. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Simon Nosrat. Alex, thank you so much for dropping in once again. I'll speak to you next week. Thanks, Diana. And from Luscious Cookbook Pages, next we're going to head to the world of Luscious Voices, and in particular, one mellifluous voice that we haven't heard on Speaking of the Arts for a while, that of songstress Audra Sergal. Good morning, Audra. Hello, how are you? It is so lovely to have you back on Speaking of the Arts. I have missed your lovely voice and your sparkling laugh. Well, well, thank you. I have also <laughs> missed your lovely voice, um, although I get to hear on the radio, so that's most helpful. <laughs> you get to hear it once a week. I have that little recording of you laughing that we used at a show a long time ago, so no, I can just listen to that when I feel down, like the lovely, lovely tinkling Audrey laugh. I love that. I remember being in a car. I remember, I think I was on my way somewhere, which is why I wasn't with you guys, and that you piped me in. We cracked up so hard. Oh, it was great. Oh, it was good. So how have you been keeping busy in quarantine? What have you been up to? You know, um, I'm a big cooker. So um, I had to, I was kind of, I had to do paleo six years ago. And ever since then, I have just been an avid cook. So I've been cooking a lot. I have been reading a lot. And like everybody else, I'm binge watching my shows. I'm re-binge watching, you know, Brothers and Sisters. This is my third time through the entire series. Um, not, I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying, saying it like it is. <laughs> just, um, so, you know, things like that, you know. And I have been, I, in the last couple of weeks, I've started writing again, which is nice. Like writing music and poetry and just really... I've had the bandwidth to start creating again, which I didn't have at first. Did you feel the muse, the writing muse had left you for the first few weeks? I absolutely did. I mean, just all motivation to do anything left me. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, other than just what I had to do, it kind of everything felt really exhausting in the beginning, but I'm starting to feel, and I think, I think also when this, when COVID hit, we were all coming out of winter. So, I mean, we just... The timing of it was we were, none of us had really been, I hadn't been doing great in February. So (laughs) for sure, I I was ready for sunshine and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, I'm just grateful for the weather shift and the green and being outside, all those wonderful things. So what, what brought the muse back to you? Well, I started a free um, online music class, a free online voice class for friends. I just put it out on Facebook to everybody, like anyone who wants to do it, it's a Zoom, so we don't have to cap it. We had enough people where I needed to do two nights um, in order to get everybody in, which was great. 
And they're all these wonderful humans um, like Meg Philip Crespi and Robin Anderson and David McSpadden and Meredith Shaw and Trent Rash and Monica Cynical Palmer. And so there were all these folks. And my, my goal for the class for myself was accountability to writing. So I wrote two pieces, one, one for each class. Um, and then everyone else had different goals just to sing or some people wanted to work on, you know, their falsetto. It was, it was all kind of different, but that's how the muse came back was meeting with my friends and having some accountability. I think I must have missed that. I'm not sure I would have been brave enough to sign up, but is it still going on or is it finished? Well, the class is finished and actually the cabaret is the recital of the upcoming cabaret is a recital of that event. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So yeah. it's been a while since the last cabaret for a cause, but now yes. this is what's coming up on this coming Saturday. Is that right? You got it. And actually, this is not a cabaret for a cause. We will have a cabaret for the cause in July, which is exciting. This just, I put the all call out about the class and then it ended up being very similar people that are in cabaret for a cause. So it ended up just being like this, a mix of folks that's uh, fantastic. So it looks like a cabaret for a cause, but it's really not. It just happened to be uh, the same folks. Okay. So it's called Sing. It is. Exclamation mark. Tell us about what we can expect. Well, we kind of, now we have a pretty half and half program, upbeat and saucy numbers. And then we have some very, you know, introspective numbers and we have some originals. So my, my student Kyla is going to do one of her originals. She's a teenager and goes to high school here in Columbia. And, and then I'm going to do some originals. And then we have music by Pasek and Paul. We have music from Pippin, Carol King, Stephen Sondheim, Kander and Ebb. So we've got just kind of a mix of everything, which is great. So uh, one of the messages that I'm hearing across the arts is that audiences, whether it's with what they're reading or what they're listening to or watching, they're really looking for uplifting escapism. So what were your decisions or discussions around deciding what the program would be? Were you thinking uplifting has to all be uplifting or... Did you, you said you had some quieter moments in there too. Yeah. I mean, Trent Rash is going to sing No One Is Alone from, you know, from Into the Woods, which is going to be stunning. And it is uplifting, even though it can, it can make you cry, you know. Um, But we actually, when we met as a class, I just asked everybody what their goals were and what theme we wanted to have. And one class said um, anything but COVID, you know, and then they were like, no, uplifting resilience. And so they wanted it to be resilience. And then the other class said that they wanted like guilty pleasures, mm. just uh, something, that, something that like they would never get to sing anywhere else. And so, you know, and then they also said that they wanted it to be funny, you know, and uplifting as well. So and then everyone just picked their song from there. I love the idea of a guilty pleasure show. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Will there be costumes? I don't know. I mean, Meredith Musgrove Shaw and David McSpadden are hosting alongside myself. So I could see Meredith pulling that out. I don't and David too. I mean, they're full of surprises. And I'm pretty sure that Meg has some things up her sleeve. Maybe we can just leave that out there because it's Friday and this is going to be tomorrow night. So if anyone's listening, you know, within the cast, just the idea of like costumes, you know, I know we can't quite catch the glitter when we're sitting on our sofas, but we can certainly see the sparkles. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. 
That now, is exactly right. Because we are all at home on our sofas, one of the things that we could now do is sing along because you can't hear us, luckily. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? We're uh, using StreamYard, so I could even type some lyrics in for folks where it would be on the screen. <laughs> that was my next question. Will there be a lyric, a sing-along at home lyric sheet available? Um, I love that idea. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Oh, my gosh. You're brilliant. I'm going to do this. <laughs> I love it just for my own self. I mean, because I know um, one of the pieces is Rainbow Connection. I mean, who doesn't want to sing along with that? Although I, I'm not sure that I want to drown out these beautiful voices by, you know, my own voice. <laughs> I should just be listening to them. But Well, you can always turn them up louder so you can't really hear yourself. You know, you can you have volume control on your on your PC, right? Perfect. What are the challenges of performing when everyone has different room sounds and different internet speeds and those little strange internet blips happen in different places? Does that make it tricky? Yeah. Well, I'm super grateful for Monica Cynical Palmer and Trent Rash because they did the Mosey fundraiser online. And I watched that and it was so, they were just so incredible, the, the way they hosted it and the musicians came in and out so seamlessly. And so I thought, boy, I should pick their brains about how they did that. And, um, and then, so she gave me some, a recommendation of having a tech rehearsal, just like you would as for a live show. And so we did that last night and then we'll do it for the cl- Tuesday class and then Thursday's class will have their tech rehearsal. And it helped a lot just to say, here's, here's the sound level of my speaker and here's where I'm standing in the room and here's what my room looks like, you know, cause, um, just having feedback on like, Hey, maybe not that background. <laughs> like, <laughs> Take down that Conan the Barbarian poster. Yeah, right. So just, it was great to give each other feedback on that part of it and being able to hear. So the tech rehearsal really helped. So before we close, just tell us how people can find it and, and log on to it. It's so easy. You just go to your Facebook account and you can view it at Talking Horse Productions. On their page, it will just be streaming live. Or you can view it on my page, Audra Sergal Musician. Um, it's just going to be live streaming on Facebook. Super, super easy. And the all the donations will go to Talking Horse Productions, of course. And we're going to have a little cameo with Roshara Knight. So that will be lovely just to get to to see her and have her be a part of it. Perfect. Well, Audra, thank yeah. you so much. We'll check in with you thank on Saturday you. night and watch Sing! Exclamation mark. All right. Thanks. Good to talk with you, Dinah. Thank you, Audra. See you soon. Bye-bye. I think we'll stay in the world of music for our next stop. A visit to the magnificent Missouri Theatre, where the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Monica Palmer, who I now feel is my own personal tour guide to a realm of music I used to, I confess, dismissively waft past, has another story to unfurl about a talented female 19th century composer. Good morning, Monica. Good morning. (laughs) Now, I am so excited that on this week's show, we get to stay on the topic of virtuosic vixens, which I love your (laughs) phrase there. And, you know, I'm kind of sad to admit to this, but it is truly eye-opening how many female Mm. composers have been busy being quiet geniuses over the last 400 plus years, but whose bodies of work have been almost totally sidelined by the men. And, you know, and it isn't 
really a surprise. I mean, it happens to women mm. across all the artistic genres. And and even today in the classical and new music field, it's still the case. I remember a couple of years ago, I had two of the international composers that were here in town for the Mizzou New Music Festival, an Irish composer called Amanda Feary and a New Zealand composer called Gemma Peacock. And they were still fighting against a prevailing white male universe of contemporary yep. composers. So I love that you and I are now focusing on the women, but how much is really changing out in the wider world about hearing these women's music? Well, I think the more that we talk about them, the more that we show that we're interested, it will shape, you know, because I think, you know, in in all of the arts, there's a certain balance between giving the people what they want and really putting out what the critics and what the experts, if you will, deem remarkable. So I think that if the people demand it, they will get it, you know. So if we're demanding programs featuring more works by women or more works featuring uh, diversity, then then we'll get it. So I, I think that you're doing your part, Diana. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you were doing yours, Monica, by, by opening my eyes to these, these people. I mean, I've just been fascinated. Part of the problem, too, especially with women composers, is just, I think we addressed it a little bit last week with Barbara Strozzi, is that uh, just the fact that the works don't exist. They weren't saved properly. Or uh, the potential, as we'll talk about this week with Clara Schumann, I think the potential was never realized to its fullest extent as it was with a lot of the male composers. Because they were doing things like, in Clara Schumann's case, raising seven children and supporting her family. So there wasn't a lot of time to, to lose themselves in that uh, composition act. And so I think that what we're really grieving when we're talking about the the imbalance between what we're getting as far as the great composers of all time, you know, and they're mostly male, I think what we're grieving is this lack of what could have been. And that's sad. (laughs) Yeah, I'd never thought about it like that. I mean, I certainly think there must be so much music that, like you say, was just never saved. It was torn up, it was thrown away, it was discarded, it wasn't important, it was sidelined. But yes, all the talent that could have been that just wasn't allowed to flourish, that's that's a much bigger loss, I'm sure. Yeah, well, and and maybe was never created. So that's, that's where I think what happened with Clara. Well, let's talk about Clara. You said in an email to me that thinking about it just makes you weep. So tell us the sad story of Clara (laughs) Schumann. Well, I think part of Clara's charm was this kind of melancholy that she always had. You know, I think it was something her daddy capitalized on. She, like Barbara Strozzi, had kind of a stage daddy. So this is like, you know, our modern day stage mother that we think of that's pushing your child to sing out, Louise, you know, that kind of person in her life. Her dad very much saw her as his work and uh you know his his gratification about himself was through her success and so it's really strange like it it, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies when i read about it because even her adolescent and childhood journals were written by her dad so it's like written Ew. in her voice yeah seriously it's like it's very strange and then like this is what we have to learn about this person and it's all shaped like she was a product of her father first and then somewhat her society and then her husband and you know she's she's always viewed through her relationship to these men in her life and it's kind of sad and also beautiful like she's part of one of the most beautiful love stories in the music world you know she was married to Robert Schumann who is one of the great if you will uh, composer 
Sisters. And so her name is still known. Like she's probably one of, if not the most familiar to this day, female composers. But she's still well, well overshadowed by, by her husband, Robert Schumann. But anyway, so, so she was a child prodigy. She was uh, pushed forward at a very young age by her father, Friedrich, who was a professional pianist and teacher. Her mother was also musical. She was an accomplished singer. And so Clara was out there, you know, kind of working the circuit at a very young age. And people thought she was remarkable. She had incredible skill at the piano. She was like a little demon. You know, she really embodied the music. You know, she was influenced by that performance being more than just the music you're putting out, but giving the people something to watch and experience, you know, the whole entertainment package there. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, Robert Schumann, he moved in with the family. I think Clara was only eight years old when Robert Schumann moved in, and he was 18, so he was an older guy. He watched her grow up, and, and it wasn't until, you know, she became a teenager that they started kind of turning turning the bend in their relationship. But it's remarkable to know that, the first letter that, that Clara saved and when they started their kind of private correspondence together, it was about her as a composer. It was musician to musician rather than suitor to admired young lady. It wasn't about her beauty or about her physical appearance or, you know, about how he affected her romantically. It was about, hey, what do you think about when you compose? What inspires you? What have you composed lately? And so that, the, the fact that she saved that, you know, I think that tells, you know, what was important to her and kind of the basis of their love story was art, this creative collaboration that they had and how they impacted each other. And even Robert, he wrote at one point in their relationship, we will publish a certain amount in both our names. Posterity should regard us as one heart and soul and be unable to tell what is by you and what is by me. How oh, happy I am. That's so, so lovely. It's gorgeous. And, and, you know, and that's what they would do to Like she would improvise you know, or he would improvise and then they would both write pieces kind of like this. And it was their their love, their story was in the music that both of them wrote. So to say that Robert Schumann's work was all his own, I think is probably not entirely true. And the fact that she stopped composing when he died is another aspect of her heartbreaking story. <laughs> because I think she, and it was, again, product of the time, she viewed composition, especially from a female, differently than she viewed composition done by men. There was this um, Fanny Hensel, who was another female composer and musician at the time. And Clara was a big fan. You know, she thought she was incredible. She actually dedicated a trio to her that she had written. And then if she had a criticism of Hensel, it was that her composition was weak. And Clara wrote about her that women give themselves away in their music. And to me, that kind of explains why Clara didn't play a lot of her own work, especially after Robert died. She, she was really all about making sure he became part of the classical canon that was being published and really applauded at the time. It was all about making sure Robert Schumann's name went down for posterity and not her own. So kind of sad that she viewed it that way, you know, because I think that she really did enjoy composition. Like I think she she had that musical soul, that thing that we hear about in all the great composers that, you know, she, she would listen to the wind and she would hear music in it. And uh, there's another beautiful quote that I found for you. It, it says, 
There is nothing that surpasses the joy of creative activity, if only for those hours of self-forgetfulness in which one breathes solely in the realm of tones. And so it's hard to hear someone who speaks about composition like that and then who put it aside because she felt that she didn't have a voice or a place in the composition world. So that's why I say it's 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 heartbreaking because I think that there there was a lot of music in her that would have wowed us and would still be played and applauded and musicians would just be completely challenged by it and excited by it but it was never written because she she saw this this act of composition as it, it, it was too personal almost, you know, it was giving herself away. And it was something that she did with her, with Robert, it was something that they did with and for each other. And so when he died, there was no one that she wanted to do that for. Well, let's, let's listen to a little piece of music. This is her piano trio in G minor, and this is played mm-hmm. by the London Symphony Orchestra. So let's just listen to a little clip of probably what was her most famous piece of work. was the London Symphony Orchestra playing Clara Schumann's Piano Trio Movement Number 1, or just a snippet of it. Um, You can find more online. And she wrote that, I think, Monica, when she was what, just 26 or 27? Yeah, very young. And instead of like maturing as she as she composed, she she kind of got more reserved. Like if you listen to her really early works, there is some crazy stuff in there, stuff that blew people away and kind of shocked them in, in, in fun ways. I think she was a little brassier when she was a young music student and composer. But she she and you can tell right there. I mean, she she's incredibly gifted. Pianists are challenged to play her work because she just she was physically aggressive <laughs> with the piano and so it was it requires that certain amount of energy so i do i do believe that she had a lot to uh to leave us and 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 some of it maybe never made its way to the page so well i look forward to listening to the missouri symphony orchestra playing some clara schumann i hope that might be in the future at some point that would be lovely. You know what I'd love to do? I'd love to do a program interspersed with like Clara's music, Robert Schumann's music, and then Johannes Brahms' music, and then interspersed their letters being read as well, because there was this lovely little love triangle kind of thing happening between them. So that's my vision of, yeah, we'll call it menage a trois. I, <laughs> I will be at that one okay, <laughs> with my little Clara Schumann flag flying. There you go. Monica, thank you as always. Let's chat some more about some more virtuosic vixens next week. (laughs) Okay. Bye, Monica. One of the many things I love about Columbia is how one minute you can be in a gorgeous musical and then without even needing to get on a bicycle, you just amble a couple of blocks and you're in an art house cinema. 
And even if you stop for a glass of wine or a cup of coffee en route, you'd still only need to allocate about, what, five to six minutes of transit time? I love it. And here we are at Ragtag Cinema to chat to its director, Barbie Banks. Good morning, Barbie. Hi, how are you? Well, you know, I guess the big news this week, other than the fact that Ragtag staff will be handing out popcorn to Ragtag Cinema (laughs) members from 3 till 7 tomorrow afternoon, which is very exciting, while Hit Records spins tunes and everybody safely wears their masks, is that the 93rd Oscars, scheduled for next February by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, is, according to multiple sources, considering postponing its award ceremony. Yes, I know. I we've been we have an internal, you know, messaging system that we use and it's been all the buzz is that this week. So I have, you know, it's weird. I wish I had some great insight of like what that's going to mean for us. But what I think it means is more months of not no new films. You know, I think people are going to put off releasing their films. So they're mm. um, qualified for whatever the Oscars look like in 2021. And so it's it's sad. It's uh, It's kind of a gloomy week for you know I mean we have creative ideas happening all the time at Ragtag and um, but there is something about those films that sort of sustain us financially and those are the big Oscar films and so it's just going to look very different than it has for the past 20 years. Has the Academy Awards ever been postponed before or cancelled maybe during the war maybe? Yeah you know um, I mean it was much smaller during World War II And so that's what they did is they, if there wasn't like a big extravagant party because Hollywood was really big in World War II of making sure people understood their resources were also going to the wars. They've never been canceled or postponed other than just really drastically cut back. And so, yeah, this will be a first and who knows. I mean, there are so many films that have bypassed us all and so many from the classic canon of films that we would love to see again. And so there's plenty to see. They're just not brand new. And I guess it's the brand new that generally brings people in. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, for Columbia, people love Ragtag. And I think whatever we show, we're going to get a crowd out to see it. But it will be the people who are already huge supporters of the arts and are coming into our space all the time. And what the Oscar films do, especially this year with the Adam Sandler film that we had, Uncut Gems. I mean, it brought people who had never set foot in maybe even downtown, especially Ragtag, to come out and see those films. And what we think that does is brings them back eventually. And so I think we'll see repercussions of this for a couple of years of the true fans be coming out and supporting us. And, but we're always trying to kind of expand our audience too. So we have to see what happens. I'm trying to stay very positive about it because I do believe in Columbia and in what we do at Ragtag. I, I must admit in terms of the Academy Awards, I'm not, I don't really follow it. I'm not a giant fan of it. I think it really is about who has the best marketing and the best connections. And my favorite yeah. films of the year <laughs> rarely make it onto the list, but Um, There was one film last year that I was totally gobsmacked not to see in the nomination list. And I I still, I'm just still baffled by it. And it wasn't a film that I loved. It was a film that I felt was an endurance rather than pleasure. Uh, But the acting was of a caliber that was so extraordinary. So let me ask you, why do you think 
that Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe did not even get nominated for their performance in The Lighthouse. (laughs) I 100% agree. We all thought for sure Willem Dafoe was going to get nominated, if, if not both of them. And so it was pretty shocking. I think that they didn't have the push from their distribution company to get them out there. And my personal opinion is they released that film wide, which means it went to art houses and to you know, like our our Hollywood theater here. And nobody goes to the Hollywood theater to see that type of film. And so the numbers weren't very good. So they opened it in all these theaters. It looked like it flopped when at the art houses, it was actually a huge moneymaker for us because that's where you see that type of film. And when a film flops like that, then they stop putting effort behind it to get it nominated mm-hmm. for things. So it was shortlisted for cinematography because the cinematographers association, like the, you know, people who recognize and know cinematography really well make those nominations. And so it, you know, got recognized for that a little, but the acting, I agree. We were just shocked. We're like, there's no way they, they literally put their bodies through hell to make this film happen and make it realistic, you know? Yeah, see, that just reinforces my opinion of the Academy Awards. I mean, that, that they did not get nominated. I'm like, I'm done with the Academy Awards. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I can remember the first time, like right when I started working for this organization, I found out it really was all about marketing. I was, oh, I was devastated. <laughs> <laughs> so this week you have a new film, a virtual film available for us called Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Clint. And this is fascinating to me. Tell us about it. You know, honestly, whenever I first heard about this, I'm not like the biggest art person. Like I appreciate it and I love that people do it and I love it. But then when I started reading about her, I was just blown away of like, how are these amazing women always getting forgotten throughout history? And then these movies get made to show us who they are. So Hilma of Clint was a artist who was one of the first artists to do abstract work and um, you know she thought her work was ahead of its time which it was and was very protective of it and so I was reading that she wouldn't let it be shown until 20 years after her death and so there was a long period of time where it got hidden away and so and now we're getting to learn about her in this film and it does a really good job of telling her story there's times where you'll be pissed off that, you know, (laughs) the stuff women have to go through and her getting written out of the history books of art. And this is our chance to like learn about her. And there's a a great exhibit that I hope we eventually get to see some, you know, in St. Louis or Kansas City, probably the most likely place to come so we can learn more about her. I was amazed because, I mean, I studied Swedish, so I'm I'm doubly guilty of not knowing who she is. How do I not know who this woman is? Um, right. <laughs> but they said, you know, art history has to be rewritten because she was producing all these abstract works years before it was really coined as a term. And then you look at some of her work from like 1906 and Albers is doing it, you know, sort of many years later or Klee is doing it many years later. And it's so derivative of her work, yet she was never recognized. So if we're going to talk about the history of abstract art, it has to be rewritten because she was there first. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we see that happen so often mm. and that these, especially in art where the the men get all the credit for stuff that has been done by women for a long time. You know, there's several examples of that throughout film history and I'm sure in music history, too, of 
women having this great idea and then men capitalizing off of it. And that's really been the theme that Monica and I have been talking about with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra is all of these female composers that have been sidelined through history and just weren't even ever encouraged. And so who knows what they may have produced, let alone what has just been lost. And so you think of the same thing of female artists and female filmmakers, you know, when you're not encouraged to carry on, then whole bodies of work are never conceived. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the the Oscars, the numbers for women are always dismal. But with Mm. the scores and music of films with women, the statistics are horrific. So those same women composers are getting written out of all types of, (laughs) you know, music. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's baffling to me. And I'm glad that there's people out there making this work and helping us understand and kind of have the chance to rewrite history and shake it up a little. So Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Clint opens today on Friday. And like all of the other films you're streaming, 50% of the fee that we pay goes to support Ragtag. So that's awesome. Yes. And then do you want to just talk quickly about tomorrow's curbside corn event? (laughs) Yeah. So we just, we really just miss everybody. And so uh, we're going to be gloved up and masked up, bagging popcorn and handing it out to our members. So you'll just drive down Hitch Street past Ragtag. We'll hand you some popcorn. And, you know, the corn that we serve is grown in Missouri and it's made with coconut oil and it's delicious. So we just really want a chance to see everybody. So free popcorn provided by Uprise. And yeah, it's just going to be a fun a fun way for us to get out of our houses for a little bit. And music by Hit Records. So they'll be spinning yeah, some tunes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they, you know, their record store is doing curbside. So if you order something, you can out- pick that up while you get your popcorn. You know, the dangerous, we're all going to want to stay and party because we're both I know. <laughs> <laughs> I had to make a sign up for the staff because I'm like, oh, we're, 20 of us are going to show up. And technically, we're not supposed to be doing that just yet. So, <laughs> yeah, I hope it, I mean, I think it's going to be a fun time and, um, the popcorn machine, I tested it out this week and it is, it is ready for everybody. Wonderful. Well, thank you as always, Barbie. We'll catch up next week and see what's new and happening at Ragtag. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks. Bye, Barbie. Bye. And the last stop on today's arts tour is to St. James Street, where behind the curtain of Talking Horse Theatre, I get to play improv once again with the theatre's artistic director, Adam Bretsky, and the mistress of the stable boys, Kathleen Johnson. So every time I walk through the virtual doors of Talking Course Productions, I imagine that maybe it's one step closer to the day where I can actually walk through the doors and hear the chatter of the audience coming from the theatre and see the gorgeous Rashara Knight standing at the desk and see people wandering through from Dogmaster Distillery with their drinks. It's such a lovely vision. Has anything progressed, Adam, since last time we spoke? You know, unfortunately, it it is one thing that... everything changes day to day. So we were looking forward to auditions for seminar later this month. And unfortunately our board has made the tough decision to uh, postpone that show into sometime in the future. Unfortunately, we do not have a set date for that quite yet. All I can tell everybody that's listening is I personally love the show quite a bit and I absolutely want to make it happen at some point in the future when it makes sense to do so. But 
in, in some better news, I think we are getting closer to the point where people are ready to come out to the theater and excited to see some projects that we've been working on. And this is where the creativity comes into play because we may not be able to fill the house comfortably, but what we might be able to do is uh, take some creativity to produce shows without uh, royalty fees attached to them or to do some improv, which of course, as you know, Diana, we are big fans of there. And that's something that's really easy to produce that we can do it in all sorts of circumstances. And of course, it's a lot of fun for everybody involved. It is, Kathleen. I hear you've had a rehearsal. How, tell us about that. You know, it was it was really interesting. The Stable Boys talked quite a bit about kind of moving to that next step where we are still respecting the, you know, the danger that's involved with the virus that we have right now, but also kind of moving into that next space. And so we had our first I will do air quotes in person rehearsal um, where most of us were able to be there. We met in a backyard. We maintained six feet of distance between everyone in our troop who doesn't live together. And we actually had like a really good conversation about should we be wearing masks at this? How does each independent person feel? Everyone was like, well, here's how I feel, but I'm willing to do whatever makes everyone the most comfortable. And it was just wonderful to be in the same space. And it showed we can do scenes where we stand very far apart while still being able to do the thing we love face to face. How did it feel? I mean, you're outside in the open, so sound is moving different. Obviously, you can hear each other. But did it make you think about how you might be able to incorporate an audience into that kind of outdoor setup? So we first had to see, do scenes work for, for us to be so far apart? And, and the answer was like, yeah, oh, we can do this. You know, we've discussed doing filmed versions or like live casted versions of us where we're in the same space, as well as the possibility since we're moving into summer of what would an outdoor performance space look like. But the exciting thing about getting together and doing it was really seeing Again, like in so much improv, when you put certain restrictions on yourself, what can flourish from that? And one thing we found was a ton of physicality, something that's really easily forgotten. I think when you're just doing normal shows in normal times and when you're so far apart to just stand there feels awkward. But ooh, if we're six feet apart because I am loading all of these boxes onto a crate or you are in ye old times wheeling a barrow of bushels, suddenly... Oh, we can like do we can do this and we're coming up with new scenes and new characters and new new things. It was really fun and something that I I hope I feel very confident that, you know, with a little bit of planning and logistical work, we're going to be able to bring that to people. Maybe we could have like once once we can gather in a little bit larger groups outdoors, maybe we could have a series of like fundraiser garden parties and you can move into people's gardens and we can all invite our neighbors around and have a new audience for improv. I think that that's be a, a lot of fun. Idea. <laughs> okay, I'll get my garden ready for that. Yeah, let's talk. <laughs> Off radio. Okay. Um, <laughs> what game have we got today? So I think Kathleen and I, as she mentioned, we had the same thought because one of our favorite games is a little game called New Choice. And I don't, I cannot think of an improv game more appropriate for the time that we are in right now, where you have to take everything you love and that first idea that comes to your head and then change it immediately. Yeah, <laughs> the pivot. And not even know when you have to change it. Someone right. just randomly insert <laughs> themselves and says, Haha, just kidding. Okay, as an audience member, this is one of those ones that I always think, oh my goodness, this looks so difficult. So. (laughs) 
You know what? I think it. this is one of the most deceptive improv games from that standpoint. I think it looks very scary, but I think it is actually much easier when you get into it because, again, you have someone else that you can kind of blame the the circumstances <laughs> on. Um, and then you are forgiven for the things that you come up with. So, yeah. So, Adam, how logistically, what do we want to do here to play this? Well, I think since we tortured Diane last week, we might uh, give her all the power. And Kathleen, you and I will do a scene. And then Diane, you can, whenever you feel like it, you can shout out new choice. And we will immediately change the last line of dialogue that we spoke. Okay. I think that sounds great. But I want to put the clock on because Ooh. I want to make sure we save enough time that Diana has to try to oh. uh, do this too. So with our last time, we are going to get you to the, at right now, the pinnacle of improv success, Diana. Okay, I'm, I'm ready minute. for it. I'm ready for okay. it. Can you give us a suggestion, something like something to start our scene? Stopping at a rest stop on the interstate and being nervous about seeing other people. Oh, well, uh, oh, hi there, sir. Uh, my name is Jim, and uh, I'm here to pump your gas. New choice. Oh. Uh, I'm here to uh, talk to you about the safety regulations at the Quickie Mart here. Oh, wow. That is full service. Uh, well, so for starters, I need uh, some unleaded. It holds about uh, 12 gallons. Um, oh, so... a 12-gallon gun. Wow. Yeah. You have uh, <laughs> quite the... Quite the is that yeah you know we uh we normally only have ammo for uh like unleaded ammo for like normal sized guns. Oh, I was under the impression that you also treated squirt guns here. New choice. Uh, I was under the impression that you served both cars, guns, and animals. Oh yeah, no, no, we do, we do, but our uh our gas and our animal components are currently uh shall we say more expansive than our, than our gun components. Right. Right. Okay. So uh, uh, if you're interested in animals, can I, uh, can I talk to you about our new shipment of parakeets? New choice. Our new shipment of koala bears. Oh, you know, I love me some koala bears. Are they, they still have the claws that I can grip them when they hold me. Indeed, and that's actually why we have them. We find people are very starved for human touch these days, and uh, and our koala bears serve as a a nice uh, intermediary when you don't have that special someone to mm. snuggle up with. Yeah, I haven't touched a human in seventeen months. Okay, I'm yeah. end scene. <laughs> okay, great job. That's fun. Um, okay. I'm gonna. Who do, who wants to say new choice? Anyone wants to be in the scene, Adam? I'll do either one. What are you? What are you feeling like today? Uh, I'll call it out. Sweet. I'm with All the right. master of improv. <laughs> <laughs> um, the student will become the teacher, Diana. Uh, what What is a suggestion being given? How about kind of keeping with that same theme? You guys are in the grocery store uh, stocking candy shelves. Oh my gosh, Sandra, where are we going to fit all of these whatchamacallits? I don't don't know, but I'm not sure that I can keep on stacking candy. I have been stacking candy for weeks now. Will people ever stop eating chocolate? New choice. Will people ever stop wanting to suck on gummy bears? You know, I, I don't think so. 
to be honest, I feel like this was a long time coming. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I heard them talking about it in the back room. I bought a little extra stock in gummy bears and I saw this thing coming down the line. Oh, that was, that was smart. I mean, I went for the toilet paper, which, you know, to be fair, was also smart. Oh my gosh, that was smart. So tell me how, how are your stocks doing? You, are you coming out pretty good? I've, I've got about 125 rolls left, which should see me through until, you know, oh. well, with all the chocolate I'm eating, on, probably Sandra. the end of June. No, no, no. I meant I, I invested my money in the stock market. Did you, when I said you should get into the stocks, did, did you steal toilet paper well, from the I thought that store? was what you were suggesting. I mean, Your I mean, choice. I uh, I didn't personally steal it. I mean, I hired people to go in and steal oh, it. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to... I, I just backed my friend's lorry up at the middle of the night and uh, I just said, guys, just load it in. So we just, together, we just loaded up the truck. I mean, you know, that's kind of why there's no toilet paper on the shelves. Oh, you are savage. That is... You know, I, I used to think... You know, you were you were just the the quiet stock girl, but uh, you got a international you know, criminal, international criminal. <laughs> I am a very quiet stock girl. It's the quiet ones you got to worry about. That's what they always say. Yeah, no, I like that. You Your wanna, choice. I, uh, I uh, I can't believe this. I'm reporting you to the authorities. Authorities, you, Kathleen Snitchy Johnson. I mean, I mean, that's clearly why they call you the Snitch. Oh, yeah, maybe sure. you didn't know that. <laughs> what? They call me? No, I don't want that. I've heard the youngins say when they come in that snitches get stitches, and I don't want to. The healthcare system is a mess right now. I can't be going to the hospital. Give me a new nickname, please. You hold your tongue, I'm going to be in the back of my truck on the way to the Mexican border. (laughs) Scene, wow. Wow, we saw a new side of Diana today. You are made for improv. (laughs) I'm made for improv. The improv show is going to star Diana Moxon, I think. Well, you know what's great about this game is that uh, we talk a lot about the culture of yes and in improv. And one thing that I think is hard for people that watch it on the outside is they kind of go like, oh, well, what if an actor takes it in a direction? And what New Choice is terrific about is it reminds the actors on stage of it doesn't matter what happens. You just have to go with it, even if it wasn't your idea, even if it was your idea and you don't know what you said. Uh, you not only have to go with it and trust yourself, but you also have to trust the person that you're on stage with to follow. Yeah, it yeah. The yes and and I feel like we touched on this a few weeks ago, but yes isn't saying yes in the scene literally to every idea. Yes is saying I'm going to live in this world with you. Like mm-hmm. I accept the reality of our circumstances right now, and if this is true, what else might be true? And what a great mindset for us to be in right now we accept our circumstances and we say what can we do within these so and with that we are hugely out of time (laughs) 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 kathleen johnson adam bretsky thank you so much and we'll be back in touch in the next couple of weeks all right bye diana bye and that is it for today's show 
Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished until we can all be together again. Stay safe and stay arty, Columbia. Bye.